Before we get into our passage, um, just one thing that is pretty neat that I would like to point out. Um, we are a church plant. Um, we've planted a church. We believe that church planting is God's way of, um, most normative way of fulfilling the Great Commission. And one of the things that's just been on my heart in prayer for years, because I've seen the flip side of it, and I've rarely been able to see the beautiful side of it, is for churches in this area to not see themselves as in competition over one another, squabbling over the few that are saved in this area, using terms like stealing sheep and stuff like that as if they belong to us and if they're not the Lord's anyway and just entrusted to us as a stewardship. And um, we've got a really neat relationship with uh, True Life Church in Brick. And my friends Scott and Camille, Scott, would you stand up uh, real quick? So um, that's, my, that's my buddy Scott back there. He is an elder over at True Life Church. You can sit down. You don't have to stand up the whole service. Uh, <laughs> uh, so they are actually financially supporting our church plant in Point Pleasant. When do you ever hear of a church three, four miles away from another church saying, we want to support that church? And um, we have a couple of people from Redeemer Point this morning, but um, they had a service last night on the beach. But Daniel also said in his message, hey, go out and, and worship over at True Life Church in Brick since we're stealing Scott and um, we're bringing him over here. Um, he didn't really say that part, but we, we're sending... And it's so beautiful when churches are able to say, this is not a church thing, this is not a me thing, this is not a you thing, this is a Jesus thing. And we're not here to build our church, we're here to assist Jesus in building his kingdom. So I love it when I see churches just dropping the whole territorial garbage and realizing that Christ is doing something so much bigger. So thank you, Scott, for being here and for your love for our body. I really appreciate it. If you could open up to Genesis chapter 32. Um, the last couple of messages have had a lot to do with waiting on the Lord and trusting that God's promises are true and that his ways are higher than our ways, even when they seem very difficult or they seem to run contrary to our limited scope of reason that we're able to see. Well, this morning we're going to be touching on that again with a little bit more of a specific application that you'll see as we go along. And there's a reason that we're camping out on that theme in this book, and that's because the book of Genesis camps out on this theme. We're not importing that theme into the book. We're exegeting. We're pulling that theme out of the book. From chapter 12 onward, the book centers around a promise made to a man named Abraham to go forth from that which he has always known and to go into the unknown and trust that God will bless him, make his name great, give him a land to call their own, and multiply his descendants more than even the stars of the sky. Well, and from chapter 12, right up until chapter 50, the last chapter of the book, you see Abraham, Abraham's son Isaac, Isaac's son Jacob, and Jacob's 12 sons going in and out of seasons where they believed that promise and acted in faith, or they took matters into their own hands because God was not delivering on his promises at a pace that fit their liking. They felt that God was not behaving in the manner that they thought a good God should be behaving. 
And this week, we're going to be looking at the danger, um, or when danger or some sort of trial seems imminent, it seems like it's right there, it's breathing down your neck, and God's promise, while this imminent trial is coming at you, His presence and promises seem far off. Those moments that when we look to God, we want to keep our eyes fixed on him. But like Peter, it seems as if all we could see is the wind and the waves, and we begin to sink. Well, as we look in our text, we're going to be examining the relationship today between faith and fear. And the real heart of the message is to show that if we're honest, Sometimes there is a very thin line between faith and fear and a whole lot of wrestling that could take place in that very thin line. I'm curious if anybody's ever done this before. I'm just going to set out a scenario before we see what Jacob does in the scriptural passage. You feel a clear leading from the Lord. Maybe it's even been backed up by Scripture and you're able to go to God's Word to confirm that leading from the Lord. Maybe others in your life who know you are able to speak a word confirming that they're in agreement with the wisdom and the direction that you're heading and saying this does in fact seem to be of the Lord, but then something comes along that whacks you and it rattles your cage. You feel shaken you kind of lose your bearings for a moment. Perhaps it even changes the timeline that you had in your mind that you thought God was going to be moving on this thing. Maybe it begins to make you doubt whether you had really ever heard from God to begin with. So then you begin to make all of these steps that are all contingent upon this question of, well, what if? What if God doesn't show up? What if I wasn't really hearing from the Lord? What if this goes terribly wrong and I don't know what to do afterwards? What if all the plates that I'm holding, I realize that I can't continue to keep all of those plates in the air and they all begin to come crashing down around me? What if I don't really know his voice like I thought that I did and it wasn't really him that was calling me this whole time anyway? What if I take a step of faith and God's not there to catch me when I fall? So we begin to project. Fear sets in, anxiety begins to mess with our minds, faith begins to be crowded out by fear, and we have these short bursts of both that begin to happen. And we wrestle between the place of fear, and then we wrestle between the place of faith, and we often go back and forth between the two. And that turns into, well, I'm just going to run ahead and do things my way to the best of my ability, and hopefully God will sync up with me somewhere down the road as I'm on this path. Well, if any of that makes sense, welcome to the club. Um, I've struggled with anxiety uh, my whole life. I know what it's like when you continue to just spin those wheels. So I promise I don't preach from an elevated place, but as somebody who comes alongside on this one. But if you're in a season of wrestling right now, I pray that this passage ministers to you in a really profound way so that you're able to see that you do not have to wrestle alone. So as chapter two begins, 
Jacob had just come out of a potentially faith-rattling situation that turned out to be a faith-building situation. Look at verses 1 and 2. It says, Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. And he called the name of the place Mahanaim. Uh, And it says that Jacob went on his way. What it's doing is it's recalling the previous couple of chapters where Jacob was dealing with his dishonest father-in-law named Laban. If you're not familiar with the story, I would encourage you to go back later on and read the previous chapters and see the near impossible, awkward family dynamic that Jacob was coming from. Uh, We called this part of the book God's Dysfunctional Family Tree, and man, we are not kidding, and you will see that as we go through this whole story. This whole situation that Jacob has going on with his father-in-law and his multiple wives, it's so dysfunctional that it would make Jerry Springer blush. I mean, this is some weird stuff going on in this text, especially if you're someone like when I get into wavering between faith and fear, if you're someone where family dynamics is the situation that causes you to waver, well, then I really encourage you read through Jacob's family dynamics, and it will give you another layer to understand how deep the wrestling was in this passage. But even though the situation was kind of sketchy, to say the least, and at times combative, Jacob comes out of the situation with Laban completely intact. He still has his wives. And yes, I said, I I know I said wives. Uh, I I could just brush that under the carpet and say that was a cultural thing back then. And And there is some truth to that. But even more accurately, Jacob's family dynamics And really, his whole situation was weird, even for back then. Uh, And this text doesn't hide that. That's one of the beauties of the Bible, isn't it? It's not trying to make a bunch of heroes out of these people. It's just saying, look, here's their stuff, man. You can see what a weirdo this dude is. You can see how broken his family situation is. We're not trying to tell you, go be a bunch of Jacobs out there. We're trying to show you that Jacob needed Jesus, just like you need Jesus. And this is how Jesus worked in the life of a hot mess, for lack of better words. So, nevertheless, he gets away from Laban. He's able to escape from Laban, and he still has Laban's daughters with him. He still has all of his children with him. And the only reason Jacob isn't wiped out by Laban is because in the previous chapter, it says that God actually came and spoke to Laban in a dream in the middle of the night, saying, if you touch Jacob, you're going to die. So God shows up big time. I I would consider that showing up big time, wouldn't you? Like if there was an army after you, your family, and your kids, and all of a sudden God goes and speaks into the mind of the army commander and says, look, you you could chase them down, but you can't do them any harm. And if you do, I will kill you and I will protect them. So God shows up in a big, big way in the midst of a really tough time in Jacob's life. So that brings us up to speed with where we're at here in 32. And then it starts off by saying that the angels of the Lord were there ministering to him at that place. It doesn't say what the angels did, but I think we could figure out based on other similar passages where people are kind of out in the 
wilderness and similar languages used of the angels of God, that they were somehow strengthening or encouraging a discouraged Jacob. We see that with Elijah in the wilderness in 1 Kings 19. We see that with Jesus in the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4. The God sightings are everywhere in this passage. God had just protected Jacob through supernatural means. God intervened with a dream to tell Laban to do him no harm. God had just protected Jacob's family. Now God is sending angels to minister to Jacob. And Jacob is aware that God is doing something significant. That's where this passage differs a little bit from Elijah in 1 Kings 19, who seems to be oblivious that God is even sending ravens to bring him food. And then he's like, you know what? I'll send an angel to bake you a cake. And he still just sits there and he's like, I'll eat your angel food cake, but I'm not going to be happy because I just don't see you anywhere in this. Well, this situation is different. He realizes God is up to something. And that's why in verse 2, he names the settlement that they are at, Mahanaim, which in Hebrew means two camps. And he draws the conclusion, I had a camp. Now you have met me. Now God has a camp here. And this is God's camp. This is a place to remember where God drew near to me when I was in my hour of need. And Jacob wanted to remember this moment as a time when God showed up when his back was squarely against the wall. And I'm curious, have you ever had moments like that in your life to where you can relate to where Jacob is at? Those moments where God shows up in a situation that just seemed to be utterly impossible. And you look back and you say, that had to be God. It had to be. Because there's no way I could have orchestrated these events to turn out like this and to do this in my life. So you do something to remember it. And you probably don't get the privilege of just going to another city. Like you can't just go over to like Seagirt today and be like, I'm going to name this God's camp. It's still going to be Seagirt when you leave. But maybe what you do is you journal about it or something. Or, or, or you write a little notation in your Bible. Any of you have those where you look back and you see a little date next to a scripture and you're like, oh man. This takes me right back. I remember when God met me in a really unique way, and he used this scripture to speak to me. Maybe you share the testimony over at a community group, or you put something up on Facebook saying, I just want to give glory to God about something that he's done in my life. But whatever way you go about it, the goal is to remember, God met me here when I needed God to show himself to be unique and present. So, it looks at the past, at God's past faithfulness, but we also do that to point out the future as if to say the same God who was faithful in the past is the same God who is going to walk with me whatever should come into my life. So you essentially, when you're doing that, when you write that little notation in your Bible, when you call up some friends and say, hey, I have a praise because God did something big. When you write that little journal article and you date it and you say, I want to be able to come back to this to remember, what you are essentially doing is that little notation is Mahanaim. You are doing what Jacob does here in verse 2. But what I'm more curious about, because obviously there's more to the passage than that, is have you ever had a moment like that, and then immediately you have a time where you go through what Jacob is about to go through in the next verses. Look at verses 3 through 8. It says, And God sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, to the land of Seir, the country of Edom, 
instructing them, you shall say to my Lord Esau, thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen and donkeys and flocks and male servants and female servants. I have sent them to my Lord in order that I might find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob saying, we came to your brother Esau and he's actually coming to meet you. And there's 400 men with him. And Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and his flocks and his herds and his camels into two camps, thinking if Esau comes to one camp and attacks, then the other camp will be left and we will escape. So right after being flee, uh, fleeing from this hot pursuit of Laban, Jacob has to go through the territory that his brother Esau lives. Don't know if you know the backstory of Jacob and Esau, but it's not a good one. Um, Esau, the last time that they had met, it didn't go well, we'll just say. To, um, Esau was very angry, and the last time they saw each other was 20 years ago. So Jacob, fresh off this crazy time where he just saw God intervene in powerful ways, decides to send a message ahead to Esau and tell him, hey, me and my family and my flocks are going to have to pass through your territory to get into the promised land that God promised to our forefather Abraham. And in case Esau is still upset, Jacob just wraps the whole thing up in a big fat bribe to try to help him to kind of soften the situation with some hush money before he goes in to engage it. But his men then return with a little surprise. They say, we found Esau, and he's not going to wait for you. In fact, he's coming to you. And Jacob loses his mind in this passage. I don't know if what you read in verses 3 through 8 is losing his mind, but I'm going to show you. This dude bugs, and he bugs hard. Verse 7 says just very directly, this is not me reading in it, just the words on the page are that he's greatly afraid and distressed. So where faith had just filled the guy's heart so much in just a couple of verses earlier where he's saying, this is my name. This is God's camp. God met me here. I always want to remember this moment. And now in the very next paragraph, fear has gripped his heart. And then he starts his old pattern of scheming again. He says that he is going to now. Interesting. This is a little play on words here. I'm going to divide the camp into two camps. So while Jacob, or while Esau is off slaughtering one side of the camp, well, then the other side can be free to just run away. Um, that is like a Monty Python battle plan, if I've ever seen one. But um, the Hebrew here makes such an interesting play on words. When it says that it's divided into two camps, it's actually the same Hebrew root word that was used back in verse 2 for two camps, Mahanaim. Only now the two is not God and God's people. The two camps are now a result of Jacob responding in fear and trying to take matters into his own hands to try to reproduce what God had done supernaturally previously. So this is still Mahanaim, only the one ahead of the other camp is not God anymore. This is Jacob's fear running full speed ahead and completely unchecked. And it should be noted here, this is projecting. Jacob is projecting. Nowhere in the text do we see Jacob's men say, hey, Esau is coming to kill you. 
He's taking past experiences and he's projecting them onto a future reality that he doesn't know yet. He should be saying things like, hey, things are different now. Heck, I'm a different guy now. And besides, God was so faithful to preserve us just like 15 minutes ago. Remember that? Like 15 minutes ago when God was good? Well, God didn't preserve us through all of that just to let us now be slaughtered at the hand of my brother Esau. But that's the thing with projecting, right? You're not making decisions from a place of rational faith and trust any longer. You're not making decisions that are based on wisdom or reality any longer. You're essentially playing God at that moment because you're taking a situation and believing that you know the future when the future belongs to God and to God only. And then you start making decisions based off of your warped, projected future that doesn't even exist yet, that was born out of fear and born out of not listening to God. And your decisions are all springboarding off of this thing that hasn't even happened yet. If you're really good at projecting, just in case we have any projecting all-stars, I want to kind of let you run through the mind of somebody that's just PhD level at projecting. If you're really good in projecting, you can lay awake in bed all night sleepless so that you are able to reach multiple choose-your-own-adventure fear-based scenarios and then have a different fear-based conclusion for every one of those fear-based scenarios if they were to come. You ever do that? Well, if they do this, then I'll do this. But then if they do this, then we do this, then I'll do this, and I'll do this. And then if they say this, I'll say a little bit of this. And have you ever noticed that nobody's ever said those things that you like, oh, I was waiting for you to say that because I just, it was teed up for me all night. I stayed awake in bed, anxious, and I was just ready for those words, and I'm going to knock it out. It's never happened. Projection doesn't work because you don't know the future. But any of you do it anyway? Anyone? All right. I see one guy back there. Andrew. Andrew does. So if you want to talk about projection, go see Andrew. Um, (laughs) I'm sorry. That that was wrong. I shouldn't have done that to you. (laughs) This is the same guy that was just celebrating God's camp and making it a place of remembrance that God met with him in such a significant way. So did God change all of a sudden? Did God become less interested in keeping his promises to Jacob all of a sudden? Of course not. That's what makes this irrational. And it may be irrational, but again, I ask, have you ever been there? Where God does something big, that's the start of something new and excellent going on in your life. But then a new situation arises and fear begins to set in because this is the unknown we're dealing with now. And now the God who saved you from previous peril seems very distant for some reason. Now the God who is able to be trusted is no longer seen as as trustworthy or reliable for some reason. And faith and trust are replaced by what you see in verse 7, fear and distress. So what does Jacob do with his impending doom that is in his mind that's about to come down upon him? It's actually quite beautiful. Um, He prays this beautiful prayer. Look at verses 9 through 12. It says, And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, Return to your country and your kindred that I may do you good. 
I am not worthy of the least of all of these deeds of steadfast love and the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed the Jordan, and now I've become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come back and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So total off the dome tangent. Um, God keeps using this two camps thing almost every paragraph in in this thing. So um, that to me is a biblical argument for the beauty of sarcasm. And um, it's why I've just never been able to stand it like when I lived in Colorado or the Midwest because those people are just nice. And... (laughs) I love coming back to Jersey where you just kind of have to have a jilted look at every single thing that people say to you. And then when you think that you finally have dealt with sarcasm at its highest level, God brings Ron Pavese into your life. And you're just like, yeah, shows me for wanting to go back into a place of sarcasm. Sorry, brother, I love you. Um, But he is using that word intentionally to draw something out. He's showing a difference between, well, there's two camps, or there's two camps, or there's two camps, or there's two camps. Um, but this prayer that he prayed, let's look at some of the things that he prays. He recalls God's covenant faithfulness to his forefathers in verse 9. And then he recalls, God, you're the one that told me to come back to my homeland. Shouldn't that have been enough right there? God, you told me to do this. You didn't tell me to do this so that you could slaughter us and not keep your promises to us. And then in verse 10, he remembers that who God is for a moment and who Jacob is for a moment. And he has this amazing just second of clarity in the midst of this running around and chasing his tail. And he's saying, I'm not even worthy of all of the great love that you've shown to me, yet you still pour out your love on me time and time again. And then he remembers how he left home with nothing, and God has multiplied him and blessed him and turned his possessions into more than anything that he could ever ask. And then he comes to the time and petition in verse 11, and he confesses, God, I'm afraid. He brings his fear before God, and he asks for protection. And then at the end of the verse, uh, at the end of the prayer, he again goes back to recalling God's covenant, faithfulness, and promises. He remembers how God was faithful to Abraham and how God was faithful to his father Isaac. And he remembers the covenant that he made with him before his forefathers to multiply him and his children greater than the stars in the sky or the sand in the shore, which is what he uses here. And implied in that is we can't be multiplied like all of the sand on the shore if we're dead. It doesn't work like that. So God, you have to protect us and remain faithful to your promises. And then after that prayer, he goes to bed. And I think there's something beautiful about that too. Have you ever been in just like such a tizzy where it's just like all I could do is just pray myself to sleep and it's just kind of that exhausted, like the Lord finally lets you just like conk out and, and well, that happens. And this has always been one of my favorite passages in the Bible because I get this, man. It looks so schizophrenic on the surface. You have these majestic moments with God, and then you fall into the pit of anxiety and despair and projecting and scheming wrestling with all the same stuff that that Jacob was wrestling with, only to pour out my heart before God in prayer 
So as you look at Jacob's prayer, you realize the kind of things that he just prayed, and you realize it should have been able to be put to rest at that moment. But verse 13 talks about where Jacob wakes up the next morning. So he stayed there that day, and from that day he took a present to his brother Esau, and I'll I'll read more, but I just want to show he stayed there, he woke up, so no sooner does he wake up till he goes right back to plotting, projecting, and scheming, right after he has this beautiful moment, so meets with God, has this fear, meets with God, has sleep, wakes up, goes right back to projection again. What happened to that beautiful prayer? the night before? What happened to the peace that he got from trusting God with that situation from the night before? He goes to bed casting his anxieties upon him because he's good and because he cares for you and then wakes up and immediately takes his will right back the next morning. Look at uh, verses 14 through uh, uh, 20 so you can get a picture of what he's got going on here. It says, um, so he took 200 female goats, 20 male goats. I'm not going to name all these animals, but a lot of goats. Um, And he handed over his servants and passed by himself and said, pass on ahead of me and put a space between me and the drove. He instructed first when Esau, my brother, comes to meet you and asks, to whom do you belong and where are you going? Who are these ahead of you? Then you shall say they belong to you and your servant Jacob. They are a present that was sent ahead by my Lord Esau. And behold, he is behind us. He likewise instructed us the second, the third, and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him, and you shall then say, I mean, are we projecting now or what? Moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us, for he thought maybe I'll appease him and give him a present, and that goes ahead of me, and then afterwards I'll see his face, and then maybe after that he'll accept me. So the, pre- the present passed on ahead of him. It's a pretty deep statement. I know that present is not a uh, homonym like it is in uh, English, but I think you could also be saying because of his projection on the future, the present passed on ahead of him. And he himself stayed that night in the camp. So his level of projecting by this point has now reached the state of neurotic. He separates two camps as not good enough. God gave him two camps. Now I want four camps. And he puts in all of these bribe gifts, hoping to buy off Esau's anger. Anger that I should add that Jacob doesn't even know even if it even exists anymore. Um, Have any of you been angry about something 20 years ago that you're not angry about anymore? Right? So he's not even like stopping for a moment to consider that that might be a reality. And then he gets into this whole, well, if Esau says this, then you say this. And then if Esau says this, then you say this. And then if Esau wants this, you give him a bunch of goats. And it's just madness that's going on. But the madness is why I absolutely love this passage so much. You are seeing Jacob waver from fear to faith and fear to faith all over the course of a very short period of time. And we get that, right? I mean, we've been there. I think we've all been there. It would be so nice and neat to either say you're either operating in faith or you're operating out of fear. But life is not that neat and tidy, is it? 
I mean, how many times do we teeter-totter between faith and fear only to find ourselves actually straddling, straddling the middle? And I don't know if you've ever seen a seesaw, but straddling the middle is actually a very dangerous place to stand on a seesaw. So we have these little arguments with ourselves. Well, I know that God is good and he can be trusted. What am I supposed to do? Just sit back and be passive and trust that God's going to put food on my table? When I, is God going to just show up and pay my mortgage? But then again, God's never allowed me to go hungry, and, and, and my mortgage is paid, and, and I'm still living in this house. Well, well, what if God's not really calling me to this, though, and I'm doing this in my own strength? And what if I fall on my face? And what if this time when I jump, the parachute doesn't open? But God would never do that to me, and you vacillate, and you go back and forth, and, and you have this little argument in your head. Often, wrestling between faith and fear is as simple as, I'm going to trust God, but, you know that the sentence is going downhill there, right? I'm going to trust God, but um, I'm going to make a fallback plan in case God doesn't let this thing work out. I've often found that the most common reason that people end up bailing on something that they believe God was calling them to is because the fruit is not immediate enough or as big as they anticipate, and it does not meet their immediate sense of gratification that they're looking for. So fear leads to bailing before he really even had the opportunity to show that he, God, will be mighty on his behalf. If we learn anything from the book of Genesis, or especially the Exodus, it should be that God often waits until your back is up against the wall before he shows up in a mighty way. But it takes faith to allow your back to be up against the wall and to not complain about the fact that, ah, my back is up against the wall again. Well, has, have you ever been driven through that wall? If you're sitting here, God showed up at some point when your back was up against a wall. The fact that you are sitting here living and breathing is evidence to the fact that God showed up at some point when your back was against the wall. So I came across a little cool tangent in the middle of, of Jacob's lunacy, and this is for my type A peeps out there. I don't, I don't know how many, but um, sometimes... People that are operating in fear are super productive. All in the course of a night, he's able to split this camp into four camps and come up with a strategy that would normally take weeks. Like, as I think through this camp, it, I don't know why in my mind, but it just seems like a mobile VBS. And I imagine, like, just waking up bugging one day and saying, like, ah, we have to set up VBS by sunrise. And we haven't even started. That's kind of the, like the motivation. And he does it. Sometimes people that are just chronically busy and even super productive are just operating out of fear. And I know this because I'm just, like I told you, I struggle with this, man. I see this in my own heart. I'm afraid that something is going to come crashing down. So I keep all the plates spinning. Um, not because I love spinning plates, but because I'm afraid of what would happen if I stopped. Anyone ever been there? Um, it's an odd place because churches rarely call out the person that's just overly productive and just crushing things for ministry. But if that productivity is motivated by fear, it's not being led by faith. It's not being led by his spirit. I just want to put it to you bluntly. 
If you're not able to stop and rest, again, I'm talking to you type bears. If you're not able to stop and rest, then you are more than likely afraid of something and using busyness to keep you from having to look in the mirror and face that fear. It's a hard word, isn't it? I know it's a hard word for me. I know that if I stopped, then I might have to listen. And if I stop and listen, then maybe I don't like what I'm going to hear. So I'm so grateful that the Spirit puts this passage in the Bible because it shows us that walking by faith can be really, really messy sometimes. And the lines between faith and fear are not nearly as clear as we would often hope that they were. Our hyper-productivity is not always led by the Spirit and can be motivated out of the fear of, if I don't, who will? And all of this wrestling between faith and fear ultimately leads to where Jacob wrestles with God, literally though, he he literally wrestles with God here, Um, in verses 22 through 32. It says, the same night he arose and took two of his wives, and uh, they crossed the the brook, and um, then they came across to the stream and everything else that he had, and Jacob was left alone. Man, that's that's a tough place to be when you're afraid, isn't it? Being alone with your own thoughts. And a man wrestled with him, until the breaking of day, only we see that this was not any man. This was what we call in the Old Testament a Christophany. This was an appearance of God incarnate in the Old Testament. Um, so when the man did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go until you bless me. And he said, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, you shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with man and have prevailed. But Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. And he's saying, why are you asking me my name? And then he blessed him. Hmm. And Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for he said, I have seen God face to face and my life has been delivered. Um, The interesting thing in God wrestling with Jacob is that Jacob did not really need a blessing. Like, if you've read Genesis so far, he was already blessed. And and he knew that. I'm not saying, like, Jacob should have read the book of Genesis, and then he would have known that he would have been blessed. That's what his prayer was in verses 9 through 12. He's saying, you've already just covenantally blessed me, and I know that you are with Abraham. I know that you are with Isaac. I know that you're going to be with me. I know that you already passed down your blessing. What Jacob was looking for was not so much a blessing, but a tangible manifestation of God's presence in his life when he needed it. And what God was looking for was for Jacob to learn to lean on him and trust that he is, in fact, good. Look, there's nothing wrong looking for a tangible manifestation of God. Has anyone here ever wrestled with something? Just to come to the point where you say, God, I just need you to show yourself to me in the midst of this. All I'm asking for, Lord, is to know that I'm not going through this alone. I'm not going through this breakup. I'm not going through this cancer. I'm not going through this financial hardship. I'm not going through these frailties. I'm not going through these physical ailments. I'm not going through this family situation. I just want to know that it's not just me left alone, Lord. I'm tired, I'm weak, and I need you to show up in a big, big way. I don't need you to remove the obstacles even. I just need you to show me that you are here in the midst of the obstacles, Lord. 
If you're in a place like that, I want you to hear my encouragement to you this morning. Wrestle! Wrestle! What do you have to lose? I wrestled Pete LaRosa out on the parking lot a couple of weeks ago, and I'm still here to show the story. And I mean, Pete got banged up, but it went all right. Um, God's inviting you. Wrestle. Don't let fear keep you from wrestling. But keep in mind, God might be allowing you to wrestle so that he could teach you to lean on him. That's what it's getting at when it says that God touched his hip. And I know that I could give a whole message on just those verses, but it's really not the thrust of the message. It's more the conclusion of it. And interestingly enough, this passage is rarely taught within its greater context. But all of this wrestling between faith and fear, God is showing Jacob, you don't have to rest on your own strength, as fleeting as it is. Instead of fearing, lean on me. If you're wrestling between faith and fear, you don't have to do this in your own strength. God is trustworthy to you in this hour of testing. And I love the end of the chapter. After he wrestles with God, he says, you know what, since I'm in the business of renaming cities all of a sudden, I'm going to rename this place too, and I'm going to call this place Peniel, which is Hebrew for the face of God. So through all of this wrestling, Jacob sees the face of God. This is beautiful. I have often thought that Peniel would be a beautiful name for a church. Peniel is essentially just saying what we call the Christian doctrine of sanctification, wrestling with God until you see his face. Man, wrestling with God, wrestling between fear and faith, but not giving up until I have seen your face in the midst of this. That's called the Christian life, brothers and sisters. And then as it goes into the next chapter, it circles back around again and, and still the same conclusion. God doesn't need our help to run our lives. We need God's help to run our lives. After all of that scheming and projecting, you could read through verses 1 through 11 um, later on in your own time in the next chapter, but Esau finally shows up and he looks at all of these rows of animals and gifts that Jacob had set aside and he's like, yo, <laughs> What's this about, bro? I don't want all this stuff. I just want my brother. And Jacob comes in for the shake, and he goes full on Chris Farley on him. He's like, brothers don't shake hands. Brothers got a hug. And he, like, falls on his neck, and he's crying. And, like, most of the times that we project, all of the projection was completely in vain in this passage. So a couple of points to bring up to you in conclusion. Are you currently in a season between wrestling, between faith and fear? If, if you are, can I please encourage you not to beat yourself up over that and not to condemn yourself? Condemnation is rooted in fear, so condemnation is not going to draw you out of fear. It's going to just draw you further away from God. Condemnation never makes a Christian holy. Condemnation never makes the fearful Christian brave. Condemnation only leads to death because it does not come from our Lord. It comes from the enemy who is a liar from the beginning who came to steal, kill, and destroy. If you are wrestling, not only do I not encourage you not to condemn yourself, run to his grace. Hear me on this. Run to 
his grace. There is grace for the wrestler. How beautiful is that? There is grace for the wrestler. And grace fuels faith to overcome fear. You don't need condemnation to overcome fear. You need the grace that is ours and the gospel to overcome fear. If you're in a season of projecting, I encourage you, instead of projecting about the future, leave it in the hands of the only one who knows the future. If you're in a season of wrestling, allow your wrestling to push you to the place of uncomfortability in the name of Jesus so that you might seek to lean into God and even like Jacob say, I will not let you go until this wrestling causes me to see your face that I might lean on you even harder. And lastly, wrestle. Wrestle until you have seen the face of God. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for this beautiful passage that you leave uh, warts and all in the text so that we can see just snapshots of how you've been dealing with human hearts and calling them to yourself for millennia, Lord. I pray for anybody here who's walking in fear right now that they would be encouraged for the journey ahead. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're about to take communion and...